I was listening to a podcast this week uh, by Adam Young. Uh, I think the title of it is uh, The Place We Find Ourselves. He's a therapist in the Denver area. He's also affiliated with the Allender Center. And in this particular podcast, he's asking the question, what, what is the purpose of, of counseling? What do we do this for? Or we could say it this way, what is the purpose of healing? Is, is healing the end, is an end in itself? It, it is, um, but is it only is? Or is there more that, that we're looking for than simply to some arrival at healing? I hate to tell you, um, there's very few places where we come to a full stop arrival at healing until Jesus makes all things new. I think our passage today, Jesus is wrestling with a similar question. Healing to, to what end? What is it for? And I want to admit here at the beginning uh, that I have an uneasy relationship with the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and I guess to be truthful, I have something of an uneasy relationship with Jesus who's giving the sermon. Or maybe to be fair to myself, maybe it's the the way the sermon's been preached over my 50 plus years in the church. And then I have to then wrestle with the possibility that it's me. Hi, I'm the problem, it's me. Violet, did you hear me? She's shaking her head over there. What does it even mean when Jesus says that we're the light of the world and the salt of the earth? I mean, it's so simple in one sense, but it feels also like a lot of pressure. I mean, for my part, I'm largely unemployed pastor who is not really setting the world on fire as a stay-at-home dad. Many of us struggle to put our workday lives into the light of the world basket. Aching joints, dirty diapers, litter boxes, frozen waffles, and maybe for you a daily simmering anger and traffic don't seem to fit. Whether it's the widgets to make or briefs to be filed or tax returns to prepare or roofs to shingle, mundane mundane thing after ordinary thing, after exhausting thing, aren't exactly the stuff of world beaters. And we often struggle to know how that fits into the language of light of the world and salt of the earth. And then when you add to that our failing and betraying bodies, our stories of harm that have been done to us or that we've done to others, and life has a way of widening the distance between here and the picture of the kingdom that Jesus is painting in the Sermon on the Mount, or at least seems to paint, or that we've somewhere along the way been taught that he's painting. I personally have always struggled with the lurking suspicion that Jesus has put the cookie jar just out of reach. That discipleship is for those among us who have really got their stuff together. That the call falls more truly on the strong, the well, 
that the race, in fact, does go to the swift. And I wonder, have you ever felt that way? Do you ever feel that way now? Does it ever seem to you that Christ's kingdom is offered up to the capable and the competent, much like everything else in this world seems to be? The Sermon on the Mount has all too often, in my experience, been taught in such a way that I've mostly felt on the outside looking in. Like I'm included, but I'm included like the kid who is there who's to sit silently and quietly as the parents, the adults, have the conversation, to be seen and not heard. I suspect that if I've felt that way, there's at least some others in the room who have as well. According to one scholar, this particular teaching of Jesus, is descri- he describes it this way, the sermon has been the most common upon portion of scripture throughout church history. It has a long pedigree. And then he goes on to say that part of the reason there are so many interpretations or evasions from the heart of the sermon, the meaning of the sermon, is that the sermon itself creates problems for the serious reader. So maybe there's solace in that if you've struggled with what Jesus is saying in the sermon, uh, maybe it's because you're actually taking his words seriously. I'd like to think so anyway. Surely Jesus doesn't intend for us to evade or to put the cookies on the top shelf for only the the tall, the competent. Perhaps Jesus is more in touch with our struggles than we often think or feel. Maybe, and I'd like to put forward that I think he does, he's setting the salt of the earth and light of the world as a conclusion to blessed are the poor for a reason, that they hold together. But you can't have one without the other. And this reason gets missed often in our attempts to avoid or soften what Jesus is really saying. So what is Jesus doing here? I want to set us up for that question. What is Jesus doing in the way he's even framed this, the flow of the sermon. What's happening? And so I want us to just think about the historical context. And the first thing about the historical, I want to think about the historical context and also the literary context, the biblical context of what Jesus is saying here as he teaches. In the historical context, Jesus is teaching the sermon at the crossroads of two highly influential influential and developed moral traditions. The one you might suspect is the the Jewish wisdom literature tradition. It comes from the Jewish uh, moral tradition, but it was heightened and, and specifically focused on in what's known as Second Temple Judaism. The religion of Jesus' day, the the religion of the scribes and the Pharisees, it's the soup and the water that they swam in. But also, uh, the Greco-Roman virtue tradition. And Jonathan Pennington in his book, The Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing, says that both of these are concerned with the great theological and existential question of what is human flourishing. What does it look like to flourish as a human? What does it look like to be fully alive to the fullness of who we are intended to be as humans? 
He goes on to say that the sermon is Christianity's answer to the greatest metaphysical question that human have always faced. How can we experience true flourishing? What is happiness, blessedness, shalom? And how does one obtain and sustain it? Jesus is answering the question that occupied the minds and schools of the day from Stoicism to Epicureanism to Aristotelianism to even Hedonism. Pennington says that philosophers in the Greco-Roman tradition were consciously and explicitly driven to answer the question of what makes people truly happy. Or in other words, what makes for human flourishing? And I suspect we're all asking the same question. Maybe not explicitly, but it's, it's the human pursuit. It's what we're all looking for. What does it mean to live the full life? What does it look like to um, lean into what we're supposed to be, why we're here, what we're made for, to have a sense of purpose and calling and impact in the world? And so Jesus steps into those crossroads and he begins to teach and give us a way to answer the question, the way to answer the question, the only way to truly answer the question. Blessed, Jesus says, repeatedly, 14 times here in the first part of the, the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you in the passage that, that precedes what we have read this morning, where he says you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world, he begins this portion of moving into the salt of the, the earth and the light of the world by saying, You're blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. Jesus here is using a particular literary form. It's well known in his day. It's very important that we stop and understand this for a second because I think it'll help us then answer the, the bigger question. Jesus is using what is known as a macarism, which I'm sure you all know what that means. Right. It comes from the Greek, makarios, which is often translated blessed, but I think that word gets a bit confused for us because typically when we think of blessed, Rightly, especially in the church, we think of something that God confers upon us. It's a speech act of God that God speaks blessing, and we, in the speaking of blessing, we receive. And if we think of it this way in terms of the Sermon on the Mount, then what we can think is that when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, that what he's inviting us to do is to get into that space of being poor in spirit, and then God speaks blessing into that space. But that's not what's going on, and that's not the literary form that Jesus has entered into and taken up. And But when I say literary form, it was well known in the, his day, and it's uh, thoroughly uh, drawn from the Old Testament. He's using a very specific word, and what he's actually saying is that those who are poor in spirit are living the good life. 
If you want to answer the question of what it means to flourish as a human, what it means to flourish as a human is to be poor in spirit. Those who are poor in spirit are actually living out the story of human flourishing according to Christ and his kingdom. Those who mourn are actually living the good life. They're the ones who are flourishing. Those who are meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who seek and make peace, those are the ones that are flourishing in the world. It's important to understand when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, or blessed are you when you are persecuted for my name's sake, he's saying that that is the good life. That's a hard word. That may be difficult for us to understand and to embrace, but that is what Jesus is inviting us to hear. He is describing the, right, the life that is flourishing rather than pronouncing God's blessing on those who mourn or hunger or thirst or whatever it may be. And why does this matter? Why is this important to make this distinction and to understand this? In a book called Conversations with Wendell Berry, Wendell Berry's a Christian essayist and poet. If you don't know, he's being interviewed by a woman named Rosemary Berger, and she asks him in this interview about one of the lines in his essay, Life is a Miracle. And the line is, from Barry, it's, it's impossible to prefigure salvation of the world in the same language by which the world has been dismembered and defaced. And Barry says, yeah, you've got to reach toward a better language. Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount and in saying that those who mourn are those who are flourishing, those who weep are those who are flourishing, and then moving into you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world, he's inviting us to reach for a better language. A language that extends beyond our modern language of power and wealth. The language that seeks so desperately to sanitize our story our stories of, uh, from their, their grief and brokenness, their sin. Fleming Rutledge, in her book, great book on the crucifixion, says that Americans are known throughout the rest of the world as the Pollyannas of the world. Now, I want to say that there's something, I think, noble in the American story in, in, our, in our sort of rugged optimism there's also something very, very damaging about it. We live in a culture that wants to put aside the real sorrows and suffering of this world, of this life. We hear, I mean, if you think about what I've just said, it's probably struck some of you as difficult and, and maybe impossible that Jesus is really saying that the flourishing life is the mourning life. Is that really what he means? Jesus has the audacity to sit there in the looming shadow of the Roman Empire and say human flourishing is found in poverty. Mourning, hunger, 
thirst for righteousness, peacemaking. To say that human flourishing looks like persecution and being despised for his namesake. And what Jesus is doing is inviting us to reach um, into a, a, for a language that um, counters and is not formed in, in the power uh, structures of the Roman Empire. And so he reaches in his sermon and in his ministry and in his life, he reaches back into the language of creation. And he reaches forward into the language of the new creation. And he invites us to enter into our stories framed by that language. Blessed are those who mourn. Flourishing is found here. Life is found here. Jesus then, in that invitation, as he invites us to see that this is the life of the flourishing person and the life of the flourishing community. He then invites us to see what that means for us in the world. He's going to begin to unpack that in the rest of the sermon and in really the, re- the, rest, and the, the, the rest of the march to Jerusalem. And he does so by saying, you are. You are. You are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Jesus, now in his audacity, has the audacity for us to take up this story ourselves. His audacity to take up his vision of flourishing and looming and a shadow of, of the, and the power of, and wealth of the U.S. and the Western world. And he says, you are. You are not, and I love this, this actually makes it feel like the sermon has something to say to me. Because he doesn't say you should become. He doesn't say this is what you are supposed to be. He doesn't say this is what you will be. If you work hard enough or you try hard enough or if you do these things, you will be the light of the world. He says, by the very fact that you are my disciples, you are. Present tense, plural, which I think is important. He's speaking corporately. So we individually are the light of the world and the salt of the earth, but we are individually that as we exist corporately among the people of God, as the people of God. In the world. And Jesus wants us to frame our identity around who, what it means, what the, the life of flourishing looks like and what, it's, what it is. And he wants us to then understand who we are as salt and light in our very beings because we're his disciples. And I want us to just think about and remind ourselves, we didn't read this part of, the, the, of Matthew coming into the, the Sermon on the Mount, but Matthew 4 ends... You know, Jesus has been tempted in the wilderness. He moves from there to calling disciples, and then he begins his ministry. And Matthew 4 ends this way before moving into the Sermon on the Mount. It ends with the crowds forming and Jesus going throughout all of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel. And who 
does who gathers to hear this message about being them being the very salt of the earth and light of the world? Matthew 4 tells us. His fame spread, and they brought to him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures, paralytics, and he healed them. These are the, the, the very um, kind of edges of a society, the margins, the people who are broken and afflicted, the, the sick and the, the, the wounded and the sinful. Those who have come to encounter Jesus as a healer and with the question of what is healing for, it's for living a life of flourishing in this world so that we might also then be salt and light to the world. And that's who he's speaking to when he says, you are. And if that is so, then anything that would put the sermon out of reach is missing the whole point of the sermon because the sermon is meant for those people like us, like you. Like me. Those who are well acquainted with their wounds, those who still walk with a limp, those who um, are grieved over your story. And Jesus looks at that ragtag band of people in the looming shadow of the might of the Roman Empire. And says, you are the light of the world. Rome's got nothing on you. Western civilization's got nothing on you. The people of God who have been redeemed and called and healed by Christ are the very agents of light and life and flourishing in this world. And Jesus wants us to know our identity in the midst of it all. So he says, this is who you are. Now, certainly to say that you are this is aspirational as well. Right? I mean, one of the reasons I'm up here preaching, (laughs) a little bit of my story is because my first mentor, who's really basically my age, the first time I preached and I walked off the stage with my shoulders slumped because it was not good. And he looked me in the eye and he called me Tiger because that's what he called his sons. And he said, you can do this. And Jesus is doing something like that. He realizes that to say that you and I are the light of the world can feel like a task too tall, a bridge too far. I mean, after all, we are the wounded, the broken, the confused. But he looks us in the eye and says, this is who you are. You got this. You are the light of the world. Do you mourn and weep? Good. That's where flourishing comes. That's where life is found. That's where the healing of the world begins, is there.
one of the most important things that's ever been said to me was by my therapist. And all he said was, I'm proud of you. And Jesus is looking at his people and saying, if I can, if I can, tra- if I can translate, if you'll let me do that, he's saying, you got this. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. And in so doing, he's inviting us to take up that story, to reach into the language of the kingdom of God that turns the world upside down and doesn't worry about the power and might of Rome that says we're going to plant our row right here in the broken and the hurting, in the fragile and the vulnerable. And in that, we will be a blessing to the world. So I want us to just then look at what it means briefly to be salt and light. One author lists 11 uses of salt in the ancient world. I won't do anything close to that. There's good ones. We read the, uh, the Old Testament passage where salt was used in covenant making. That's true. And surely Jesus has that in mind. But there's a couple things that I, I, I want us to consider that I think he's dealing with here especially in light of this question of what does it look like for humans to really flourish. And that is that salt was also used as, a fertil- as fertilizer. So Jesus, when he's saying that you are the salt of the earth, the salt of the ground, you are the salt of this very planet for which God um, uh, is coming for, to redeem and to heal and restore. He's saying that you are like the salt that is worked into the soil that brings uh, flourishing to that soil and life into the world. You and I are fertilizer. We corporately are designed and called and gifted to be the very thing that creates the, the circumstances by which a soil can give birth to life and fruitfulness. That's who the people of God are. I think salt also, in terms of flavor, right? He says here, if salt has lost its savor, which one commentator says it, it's a kind of stark uh, statement. I've, I've often wondered this. How does, how does salt lose its flavor. I don't know that it can. I don't know. One commentator said it's like water losing its wetness, and I think that's Jesus's point. He's saying, this is who you are. How could you do otherwise? How, how could you do otherwise than to work yourself into the soil, soil of this world in order to bring flourishing to it? How else could you uh, be, do otherwise than to work yourself into uh, Food and bring flavor and delight. Jesus is inviting us to reach for a kind of language and to frame our place in the world differently and to see ourselves as what brings life and flavor to the world around us. This weekend we went to 
San Antonio to see my niece who plays on the girls varsity team in Sunnyvale play for the state championship. And we were driving down Thursday night through the storm, right, right along the edge of it. But when we got to Temple, our phones went crazy that there was a tornado warning. Uh, and so we decided this would be a good time to go potty and uh, make sure that we are safe going further. And as we're pulling into the, the first exit, it was, happened to be a Bucky's. And I, I got to tell you that I have, um, I have sin in my heart about Bucky's. I kind of hate it. I know, gasp, right? Um, like I've made this known enough that when we're pulling in, like the, the storm is coming, we're worried about a tornado and Heather turns to me like, it's a Bucky's, is that okay? I'm like... <laughs> But actually, I, I, the reason I actually said, yes, it's fine. And I, I think I said this. I can't remember it, but I'm sure I, I, I'm sure I did. I said, no, it's Texas, and Bucky's is Texas, and I've got to learn to love Bucky's. And I know that's silly. I get it. But how about we reach for language like that of love for the world that God has called us to love? The place where he has placed you. He's inviting us here to reach for the language of love for these places because he does. Do you know why you know that Jesus is from Galilee and Nazareth? It's because he loves those places. That's why. And to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world, that means um, that, that, that means that we are to take up our place in the places that God has, has um, put us to bring about the flourishing of those places and those people. That this is who we are. The church of Jesus Christ, this is who we are. That's what Jesus is saying. You are the light, not among yourselves, but of the world. What he says to Abraham is, I'm going to bless you so that everybody will be blessed, so that the nations will be blessed. And Jesus here is inviting us to understand that our healing has come to us so that we might flourish, and in flourishing, what we might do is bring the love of Christ to the place that he calls us to the widgets we make, to the briefs we prepare, to the very small and ordinary places that we often look at and go, this is worthless and a waste of time. And he's inviting us to reach for a language of love and healing for those very places. Because that's what he's come for. Mary Oliver, one of my favorite poets, um, and the, the reason she's spectacular is because she, her, her story is of severe abuse growing up, severe abuse. And what she says about her life is she says, I got saved by the beauty of the world. And so as a poet, she becomes a seer and a namer of beauty, which would be 
It would be easy for her to be a seer and namer of all that is wrong. But she becomes a seer and namer of beauty. In her poem, A Summer Day, she asks, starts with the question, who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear and the grasshopper? And then she says, this grasshopper. I mean the one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who is eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down. Can you just see it? Can you just feel the heat in the Johnson grass as she says it? She goes on to end her poem by asking this question. Tell me what it is you plan to do with your one wild and precious life. And I think in her invitation is something of Jesus' invitation for us to hear the words that we are the light of the world. We are the salt of the earth. What will we do with our one wild and precious life? What will we do? I want to say something about light briefly. Light is, is an important, I think we, it's pretty easy to get a, our heads around the metaphor of we're the light of the world, but I, I do want to remind us of if you've ever been in a situation, this is what I always think of is, is camping with, a, uh, with your children and you, know, you go out for a, an evening stroll, maybe a nighttime stroll, and you give them all the flashlights and they, it's cool and all until and invariably, invariably, the child will shine the flashlight right in your eyes. Right? When Jesus says you are the light of the world, that's not what he's saying. He's saying we are the people who shine the light, uh, light on the path toward healing and wholeness and flourishing itself. Do we invite others into the story of Christ remaking all things and making all things new? And so we do this. We are the people who shine a light on the path. We are the people who love this world because our Savior loves it. <clears throat> I'll close with this. Henry Nowen in his book, The Wounded Healer, says this. He says, perhaps the main task of the minister is to prevent people from suffering for the wrong reasons. Not to prevent people from suffering, but to prevent people from suffering for the wrong reasons. I think that's what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. He's not trying to say, you will not suffer, or that if you suffer, you get the goods from God, right? That you get the blessing. He's saying that the blessing is in the suffering. Got to remember that. Now and goes on to say, a minister is not a doctor whose primary task is to take away pain. Rather, he deepens the pain to a level where it can be shared. Jesus here is inviting us to realize that we are together in this uh, journey, this uh, band of people, this band of misfits who are called out by God um, to be the flourishing people in this world to bring light and salt to the world. And because Jesus is God's wounded healer, we can also then be those who are wounded and yet bring healing into this world to bring light and life to the world. 
Not because we have something within ourselves to muster the energy to do that, but because Jesus has entered into it for us. And because we are his, he can now set us out to be his body, his priest, his kingdom of priests into the world. In the series, Godless, there's two stories being woven through. I don't recommend movies. I watch movies that you should never watch. I'm sorry if that offends you, but I will never recommend a movie, but it's a great one. Um, it's, it's a series, a Western, and it has, uh, uh, I don't know, six parts or something, and there's threads woven throughout it, and there's this thread, the Godless thread that's represented by, um, you know, the, the bad guy. Uh, Jeff Daniels, actually. And, um, and then there's this story that centers around a well that's being dug and a church that's being built and a preacher that hasn't yet come. The preacher comes at the closing scene at the most sort of, um, one of the be- beautiful, beautifully and sad. And he recites this poem, I'll close with it. Tis a fearful thing. Tis a fearful thing to love what death can touch. A fearful thing to love, to hope, to dream, to be, to be, and oh, to lose. A thing for fools, this, and a holy thing. A holy thing to love. For your life has lived in me, your laugh once lifted me, your word was gift to me. To remember this brings painful joy. Tis a human thing, love, a holy thing, to love what death has touched. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. Amen.